0: My name is Maurice Cherry, and this is our 300th episode. Well, technically, it's our 303rd episode if you count, you know, like our bonus episodes. But this one, this one right here, number 300, well, this one is pretty special, especially because of this week's guest. But first, a word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Sappy North America's Ideas That Matter program. SAPI, a maker of high-quality printing, packaging, and release papers, as well as dissolving wood pulp, is celebrating 20 years of this unique grant competition for designers working on social impact projects. Applications are considered by an annually selected panel of top designers and social impact leaders. And this year includes Sam Aquilano from the Design Museum Foundation, Ashley Axios from the Obama White House, George A. of Greater Good Studio, Antoinette Carroll of Creative Reaction Lab and Christine Taylor from Hallmark Cards. The 2019 deadline to apply for a grant is July 19th. To learn more about the program, visit sappy.com forward slash ideas that matter. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, Design Workflow Management for Modern Design Teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 30-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview... We're talking with Academy Award-winning production designer Hannah Beekler. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do.
1: My name is Hannah Beekler. I am a production designer in the film industry.
0: Now, I know that our audience definitely knows about your work. Certainly, for anyone who's listening to this episode who has not heard of Hannah Beekler, like press pause, go Google, come back. Um, So I'm sure they're familiar with what you do, but can you tell us what exactly a production designer does and why it's such an important role?
1: You know, a production designer is a lot like an architect, but for film. So we're building sets, we're building physical sets, we're designing sort of what you see on the screen as far as the environment that the actors walk into, walk out of. Uh, live in, um, have their struggles in, and our environment wants to either play against that story or along with the story. So we're kind of there with the director and the cinematographer, what you would call the troika, um, the three that sort of set the tone, the mise en scene of the film. And you know, I try to tell stories through my
0: environment. And now, what is that process like when? Uh, and you know, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, It seems like everything in Hollywood is done so quickly. Like, how do you come up with concepts as a production designer?
1: You know, it really depends on the film first, you know, and I always want to tell people, you know, each film is like a fingerprint. It's completely different from the last. There's certainly things about the production of each film that are the same budgets and things like that. But I would say it really depends on the size of the film for how much time I have. So if you think about something like Moonlight, um, which was $1.5 million, I had three weeks um, to prep or what we call pre-production, and then we shot for five weeks. But on something like Panther, I had... 10 months of pre-production and that's the time and i'll talk about pre-production and but then we shot for four months so in pre-production is when i really have the time to sort of engage with the script engage with the story talk to the director and the cinematographer we sort of all talk about like what we envision from the story that we've read in the script um what we see um how does it align And maybe I like the idea that this director, the director has about a certain thing. And I want to incorporate that theme into the rest of sort of the ideas that I had. So we kind of do like a brainstorm session. And, um, and then you start implementing the things that you do and things change over time. Now, when you don't have a lot of time, um, you really pray that you have a director who knows what they want, (laughs) because that helps. It helps guide you. It helps direct you. That's their job, directing me. Um, and then I bring what I bring to the table and um, try to capture something. And so, you know, it, it on something like Moonlight, I had to do that very quickly. But Barry really knew what he wanted. On um, Panther, we had a lot of time to do research. And development um, of the place that we were trying to create. The places, I should say, those are several that we were trying to create, create, not just Wakanda, but South Korea and London and, um, Mm -hmm. you know, Oakland and the things that were important. So I had a lot of time on that one to really work the design really put a lot of things into the design uh that come from a place of emotion that comes from the place of tradition and familiarity and uh, sort of a Afrofuturism, if you will mm-hmm. but you know sometimes you just gotta like miles ahead we have maybe four or five weeks for prep not a long time big builds you just gotta work fast and you learn over time how to sort of um, be conceptual straight away. So when I read a script, I really envision what I'm reading. And if I don't visualize anything, I'm probably not gonna work on that script because if I can see it, like when you read a book and you see the place and you, you hear the voice, um, then I can go directly with, to the director and say, here's everything that I'm seeing. Here's, I'll pull references and pictures from books, from the internet, from magazines. I'll take pictures. I'll look for old pictures that I took to put together a, a lookbook, if you will, for the director to say, this is what I saw when I read your script. and this is why and, and these things are how um, I feel the look will work. Mm-hmm. you know, so that's really how it is. you just you you get better over time and you are able to work faster when it's
0: necessary and You just kind of do what you do. So with it being such a a visual job, of course, it's film. So people see it. But how much of what you do, like considers designing for accessibility and accessibility, accessibility, you mean for. Oh, such as like, uh, like low visibility or colorblindness or something like that.
1: You know, it's for something like that, you know. I'm always thinking about the story. So you're talking about accessibility for the audience, too? Yeah,
0: for the audience. That's what I mean, yes. Right, right. You know, it's funny because
1: I've worked with colorblind directors. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's always an interesting um, thing to happen because you have to think of it like you think of black and white film, in a sense. So it's not necessarily the the colors, and I use very specific colors in almost every film that I do. And it's very noticeable to me. I don't know about other people. Um, and those are colors that are like I scale the colors. So it's a little bit different. So someone who had low visibility could understand the color. So if you take a gray scale, and you know, it gets very technical, you take a grayscale scale, zero to 100%, right? And I'll say I want the whatever blue that we're using in uh, 30%, right? And this tone, basically, this shade, yeah. this tone. Um, but someone who might be colorblind who would see them blue, they would see blue as um, orange, I believe. Uh-huh. They would see the compliment and not the color. I'm not sure about that. I think they would see the orange of it. But it would still work. And honestly, I go with colors that are for the story more than anything. I honestly can't say that I've thought about low visibility. And I think that's something that the cinematographer probably thinks about more and the director thinks about more than I do. Oftentimes, when you look at a movie production design, they always say, and it's mostly true, is 80% in shadow.
0: Mm.
1: It's always going to be in shadow. So when you watch the next movie you watch, you look at the background, it's going to be in shadow mostly. Um, unless it's like Ragnarok where they want everything to be poppy and then you're throwing <laughs> every single color at it. But that is an interesting question. And it's something that maybe I haven't thought about that much when I'm designing. And that's the honest truth mm-hmm. is color blindness? Other than the fact that I work with <laughs> colorblind directors before, and I'm always like, no, th- I promise you, this is what the color right. is. <laughs> like, you know, we'll have arguments like that's pink. No, it's not pink. <laughs> um, no, no, it's pink. You'll, All right. Hey, yo, you other, you know, some other people come in the room. What color is this? It's beige. Oh, So that is something that maybe now I need to fold into my um, design is to really, you know, and that's part of the journey is something like this to come up. And maybe like, that's not something that I've really thought about. Now, like I'll look at something like solo Mm -hmm. Bradford lights, dark, and oftentimes theaters nowadays the projectors aren't they're not the right candle you know they're, they don't have enough candle light they don't have enough light to to light his films so and that was a big argument with solo so. um yeah. that is low visibility um when the game of thrones episodes eighth season came on and they were really low light and the cinematographer was like well you need to adjust your tvs right yeah. that so something like that to me falls in cinematography Like no matter what I do with color, if they put it in shadow, it's gray. Mm -hmm. I always want to figure out a way to accentuate the shape or the color. And that's by grading it in percentages.
0: As you mentioned that, there were two movies I was thinking of, which ironically I saw in New York in the same theater, probably 10 years apart. The first being uh, Medicine for Melancholy. Mm -hmm. Uh, by Barry Jenkins, which has kind of the same sort of play on color in that it's very desaturated, almost black and white, but not quite. And then Mm -hmm. uh, this past last week, actually, I saw the last black man in San Francisco. Saw them both at the Angelica in New York. Mm -hmm. And that one was really interesting in how it approached color. I don't know. Have you, have you seen that movie yet?
1: I haven't. I saw the trailer for it and it looks fabulous. And I heard that it's magnificent.
0: It is such a gorgeous movie. Oh Uh my God. I'm not gonna spoil it, but like there's don't, certainly don't no, no, no. It. I'm not gonna spoil it, but you will watch it and you will see how they play with color in different settings. It's, it's, it's a great movie. It's great.
1: And time <laughs> when you're working with low budget films, you'll notice that the color is more, uh, it's a stronger element because that's the thing that you can control the easiest huh. and most sufficient, right? So when I did. When I worked on even Fruitvale, when I worked on Moonlight, um, we can, you know, you control the color, and and on Fruitvale, it was kind of controlled in a way that felt <clears throat> there was an agitation to the control, mm-hmm. right? And Moonlight, there was a control that was this. Uh, it just felt like it just flowed out of you, you know. It was yeah. easy. It was. It didn't um, jar you. It was very soothing, you know, because we used a lot of pastels, um, especially in Little story. Mm-hmm. And then the colors get darker and you get a little more uncomfortable as you get to Black's story. You get a little more, you know, it gets a little deeper inside yeah. of you. Um, so, you know, and then by the end of the movie, we have lightened it up a little bit again when they're in the kitchen, in, in Kevin's kitchen in his apartment. And you go back to that yellow that you start with. Mm.
0: Yes, full circle for um shiro see now I'm, now I'm gonna have to go back and watch moonlight because i definitely remember the colors changes but i need to i need to pay more attention to that
1: <laughs> and they're pretty they're pretty bold and strong yeah. and so i think that when you watch a lot of indie films you will see designers kind of moving that way a little bit more because you can't do the big giant builds you know you can do some a little um, if you have the time uh, and you have the um crew right But the one thing that you can do is paint. You can find the color thing that you want to put in the room. You can um, control it. And you can make it, you can do so much with color, you can make it feel because, you know, there's even the physics of color, the psychology of color, what color does to you. You know, if you're in a room that's purely orange and you're in there for long enough, it can make you kind of chaotic. The more Mm. chaos happens in that field of orange. You know, my friends and I used to test this when I was in college. So my friend um, had a party. She had this artist loft, right? This old warehouse. This is back in the 90s. Mm-hmm. She painted everything orange and then put like all these orange clothes, like made a big tapestry out of orange clothes that covered one wall. The floor went orange. Everything in the whole place was orange. And everybody was asked to wear orange to the party just to see kind of what happened. Like how do people react in that? environment. And it's, and it was wild, man. It was awesome. So, you know, we know that in the fifties, kitchens were predominantly painted yellow. People argue longer and harder in a field of yellow. People eat more in a field of red. A lot of Italian restaurants are red. You're going to eat more spaghetti and pizza. Mm -hmm. So there's not only controlling the color for the story, but controlling the way your audience feels with color with
0: color yeah now you mentioned earlier like the lookbook that you have to put together um i guess when you're sort of building the world for a film and of course i heard that you've done this for your designs on black panther one of our audience members asked me this they asked me this friday when we recorded our live event they were like when can i buy the black panther bible i don't know if that's anything under your control or not but um i will
1: (laughs) you know I, you know, that Bible man, it's pretty awesome. And I'm not going to lie, you know, I'm usually very like, oh, it's, you know, it's no big deal. But no, it was a lot of work went into that. (laughs) So I'm going to take, I'm going to take a, you know, a little bit of a pat on the back for that one because it was, you know, basically nine months in the making. Mm -hmm. And I went through a lot of iterations. I had a great team that also helped me put that together, you know, a lot of the um, timelines and, you know, I wrote a lot of the story about the city itself, like Wakanda. We're talking about Golden City. Um, I wrote a lot about like the history behind certain pieces of Wakanda, um, and, or Golden City. Like what, why the parks are called what they're called. What you know, why, what the street is, what these buildings are, what these different. Um, sections of town, if you will, are the oldest part of town is the North Triangle. And why is that? Why is there a, uh, you know, Mali Timbuktu pyramid in the middle of the throne room? Why is the merchant district the merchant district? And what is it now? Like, what's the evolution in the history of step town and you know, the university area and the civic area and the CBD and how's the CBD different than, you know, North Triangle? Uh, What are the gates that you enter Golden City through? You know, are they still there? What were they? Why were they there? Where did Beshinga, you know, all of that stuff is in there. Why do the border tribe, you know, how do they get there? Rhinoceroses, you know, how do they, you know, form a bond with the rhinoceros that they have? All, you know, and you really just want to build a foundation. So, you know, the other department heads kind of have something to sort of um, have a little bit of a foundation to help, you know, in the decision making process, so that we're all on the same page. And that was the intention of the Bible. So we understood the history of it. You know, Ryan. That needed that for his storytelling as well as you know Ruth and myself. So I just dive in because I always do too much <laughs> and <laughs> I talk too much and I do too much and and Ryan knows like I'm gonna drop a 400 page book in front of them before I get the job. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is what I think. Boom. You know, and uh, the first because there's two. There's the first one, which only Ryan. He's the only one that has a uh, Ryan Coogler director. Only he still has that copy of that first Bible. And then the second one, which is the 515 page one, is the one that has the history, the timeline, the population size, the um, the migration pattern, the, why the tribes are called, what they're called, what their specialties are, because each tribe specializes in something. Um, you know, And Ryan would say, you know, I really want the merchant tribe to be the tribe that sort of was the, um, uh, you know, they they made they were specialized in making weapons. And I had to f- understand why. Like, I can't design for them if I don't know why. Where did they come from? And why do they specialize in making weapons? And how has that evolved? So, you know, um, that was the necessity of the Bible. And so here it is. You know, it's an, it's an IP. So Marvel owns it. Uh, they just did an anniversary book where they actually, you know, put some pages from the Bible into that anniversary book. So I guess if somebody would want to see some of the Bible, they could get that book. And there's a few pages in there that tells you some of the history of Golden City and the history of um of um the timeline of the of
0: all of Wakanda. I can only imagine how fun it is to just put. Like, well, one to just build that world and then just put it all together in this one, just huge digest that explains everything. I mean, and you said you had like 10 months to do it, right? You had a lot of time. I did.
1: And and in that time, I also, you know, we scouted South Africa. We scouted South Korea. um, We started setting up shop in Atlanta. We were also out of Los Angeles. I was designing the sets. We were building. We were creating Warrior Falls, which was a huge undertaking and a ginormous um, set that included, you know, a lot from special effects because we had 150,000 gallons of water running through the practical portion of the set. Um, It required actor rehearsal because we're fighting in the water, which was all practical. Um, We had to make sure it was the right height. We had to make sure it's flowed the right direction that the floor of it, because you know Michael and Chadwick were doing a lot of falls on it and um, Winston. So we had to make sure that it was padded in a way that also still remained to look like rock. So, and we had to have 200 people on the cliff side. So we also had to make sure of safety and that people could get out there. So we had these, made these cave tunnels that went about 20 feet, 25 feet back. So this thing was 10 feet off the ground, 20 more feet higher still. I think it was actually 30 feet higher. Uh, It was, I think the actual set was 30 feet, but it was 10 feet off the ground, I believe. 10 or eight or 10 feet off the ground. And then it had you know, three falls with 150,000 gallons of water that were circulating in um, a cyclical way. So it would come out and go down and drain into the, uh, underneath the set and then be pumped back up to the top and back down to the fall. So it was just the same water being recycled. And we had to make sure that harnesses were able to be hooked in and we had scaffolding on the back so that extras could walk up the scaffolding and through the caves, um, out onto the set. So it, you know, we had special effects, we had rigging, we had, you know, then you have all your cinematography side come in. Um, you know, that set was being built for approximately it is seven or eight months. Wow.
0: That's the, the yeah. scale of that is, is, that's breathtaking to even just think about. But um, I know a lot of people know about your work from Panther. We're definitely going to talk about Black Panther and Moonlight and other movies that you've done production design work on. What's what's some of the latest stuff that you're working on? Like, what can we expect from you coming up? Well, I just finished. Um, let's see what month is it? <laughs> it's
1: June, right? Yep. Um, I just finished. Yeah. Um, about three months ago, a film with Todd Haynes, uh, directing and, and he did Carol and far from heaven and, um, a bunch of movies. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm not thinking of everything, but Todd Haynes, he's a big director and his cinematographer, Ed Lockman, and it was based on a true story. And uh, the title is dark water, I believe. And it changed a couple times. It was untitled Todd Haynes project, but I think they recently just decided on Dark Water, and it's going to be pretty awesome. You know, Todd is a very high concept. He developed Goldmine. He's a very high concept um, director. So you know, when he did, for instance, Mildred Kearse and these films, they're very uh, like I said, high concept. You know, they're very stylistic um, or stylish, stylist, stylized high concept. Very bold, um, but this was based on a true story about the contamination of water um, done by DuPont for 50 years in uh, West Virginia, and how it affected many people—70,000 people, 70, people um, pretty much. It it's got now we're at the point where it's affecting the entirety of the United States of America. But from mm. from that one plant, Washington works in. Um, West Virginia, Parkersburg, West Virginia. We kind of talk about uh, the lawyer who uh, robbed a lot. And he, there was an article in Time Magazine about him when he first started suing DuPont for contaminating drinking water and poisoning um, children and and uh, men and women in that town. And they were coming up with cancer and dying animals. The livestock was dying, and he started digging into. it And he was sort of a, it's a sort of a David and Goliath story. Mm-hmm. He's still suing them. So the story takes goes over 17 years of his
0: lawsuit. Oh my.
1: Wow. And it's uh, starring Mark Ruffalo and
0: Ian Hathaway. Okay. And that we'll be expecting that coming out, I guess probably in the near future.
1: Yeah. I would say fall, winter, maybe winter. Okay.
0: Yeah. Now, was there a television show that you also uh, worked on recently? I did. I worked with Melina Matsukas on
1: why the last man for FX. We did the pilot, uh, Rodrigo Pietro, Shot it. Um, one of the most masterful cinematographers working, and um, that was quite an experience. I've not really done television, and of course, it was just the pilot. And we shot a lot like a film because we weren't doing episode, you know, episode after episode. So there were no a a more sets or main sets, if you will, yeah. um, that we had to really work with. We could kind of go in and set a tone and a look, and then sort of jet and other people come in sort of take on the uh, other episodes. And I'm not really sure what's going on with that right now. I don't know if they're filming the other episodes or if it's on hold for any reason, but so I, that was like seven months and we shot in New York city. Okay.
0: So we've talked a lot about your current work. We've talked about some work that you have, you know, coming up. I want to go like, all the way back to the beginning. Oh. I definitely want to go back to Centerville, Ohio, where you grew up, right outside of, of Dayton. Uh, tell me what it was like there.
1: It was. It's hard to explain because it was really strange. I mean, it was strange and it was different. I guess it was different. I don't know if it was different. It. I. I, I think about look. I look around now and it's diff more different than any way that I know people who grew up. So, my father was an architect. He's since passed. And my mother was um, an interior designer. And he built and designed, he built himself and designed the home that I grew up in. Really in the middle of nowhere on the side of a hill. And we had like a big long bridge that went to the front door. It was basically an upside down house. So what would technically be on the first floor was on the second floor. So the kitchen and everything was on the second floor. It was this very modern glass and wood house out in the middle of these woods. And we had horses and our neighbors were farmers. They had cows and they grew crops and they had sheep and pigs. And basically my mom was like, Okay, get out at, you know, eight AM and go run crazy in the woods (laughs) and with your brothers and sisters and then she would ring a bell, literally, outside, a big bell, and we'd come out of the woods like Lord of the Flies. (laughs) And we'd get lunch, we'd get our sandwich, we'd get our peanut butter PB and J and our, you know, red drink. And then we would go back into the woods and she would ring the bell when it was time for dinner and then we were allowed to go out for a couple hours and play Ghost in the Graveyard. So it we I spent the day we, – we made up our own. There was no other kids. It was me and my brothers and sisters. There We eventually had some neighbors that came that had kids our age. But in the beginning, it was just us. And it was like we would go into the woods and just make up stuff to do. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We would build stuff we would make up worlds we would make up like games and like who is the king of whatever i think you know my brothers would um dig six foot holes and you know camouflage them and then we would fall in them and they would laugh and you know we were just wa- we were f- like feral
0: <laughs> <laughs> not feral my god <laughs> we were little
1: children. and i don't even think i put on shoes until I had to go to kindergarten, like I don't think we wore. She's my mom would be like, "You go down to the bottom field and you'd come back up just in your diaper." <laughs> oh my goodness! You know, because we just <laughs> ran around in the woods like crazy kids. So it was a very. But then you know, like I said, I was surrounded by. I was surrounded by art. I was surrounded by uh, my dad's blueprints and my mom's sample books. And my aunt was a artist, so we would have. Art shows in the bottom field. We call the bottom field like below because we were on a hill, the field below, and then there was a creek. So, she, you know, we would have all these artists um, from the Dayton area come, and my aunt would show. And then my mom would have big parties, like she had this big medieval party, and we all had to dress up like we were medieval, and everybody ate out of bread. And she, you know what I mean? She decorated the house, so it felt medieval. And then she would have exchange students from Pakistan, Germany, Japan, um, Australia. Where else do we have exchange students from? Um, Ghana. And we would, they would live in our home for, you know, six months or so, and none of them would speak English. So we would have to learn to communicate without being able to speak each other's language, but find a common ground. So, you know, Mm -hmm. my dad was the type of guy who would see a woman hitchhiking and be like, she needs help and pick her up. And we would drive her wherever she needed or give him money. Um, You know, he would, he had his firm when he finally had a firm in a part of town. Everybody said, don't have a firm there because it's a bad part of town. But, you know, my dad made friends with everybody in the neighborhood and You know, his business was there for 40 years and um, he helped the people that needed it uh, outside of his work. And he, you know, if they needed something fixed in their home, my dad would do it. If they needed food, my dad would get it. You know, that's how I grew up.
0: It sounds like you really were exposed to, I wouldn't even say exposed to design, but it sounds like you were exposed to this concept of building worlds and, and bridging gaps in terms of culture. From a very early age.
1: From the time I was tiny. Yeah. The, from the from the jump. And it was always about building worlds. I'd go with my dad to a site and it would just be framed out and be the foundation and it'd be framed out. And he would walk me through and be like, okay, Hannah, this is the wall of the living room. And then imagine a big, you know... Uh, you know, we would we'll have a big curve that comes around here and then glass will be all over there. So he'd walk me through his sights and talk me through what some people would just say is a skeleton. Or some people would look at it and not just see sticks everywhere. But I learned to look at something like that and see a finished thing. And so it helped me in that I can walk into pretty much any location and see what it would be to what I needed it to be for the story or if it would even work for the story because my dad trained me to that when I, before I could walk, hmm. <laughs> you know, it was always about, cause when we went to build the guest house, you know, he was like, here's a saw, you know, maybe don't give one to a nine year old, but okay. And, um, start sawing wood and start learning how to measure and start learning the standard sizes of everything. He didn't really care if I wanted to do it or not. Um, I was always the one that was around. <laughs> <laughs> So out of six brothers and sisters, I was the only one that was, like, around, like, there when he was doing Uh that. So I was kind of the one that he expected to listen when he talked about architecture. But he also was a sculptor and a painter. So, you know, yeah, and culture was very important to my parents. We went to Mexico every summer almost Uh – Um, we wouldn't stay at like some crazy hotel. We would just stay on the beach in a camper in some village. (laughs) And literally that's what we would do. It it just, it was always like my parents taught me, you know, life wasn't easy. It was hard, but my parents did teach me about people. And when I was younger, I probably never appreciated it until the last probably five, six years of my life. Mm -hmm. It didn't all come into understanding until I met Ryan Coogler. My my early life, I did not understand until I met Ryan. It was always just like this weird, crazy thing that happened, like this weird life. I mean, I was riding a horse to the candy store when I was five <laughs> to get Jolly Ranchers, yo. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think mean, you would just hop on the horse, you know, and in no saddle, and you just have the bridle and a lead, and you just, the horse kind of knew its way, and you would get, my mom would never wonder where we were. It was just like, Hannah went to the candy store, so obviously I took the horse. Obviously. and Yeah, <laughs> obviously. So, you know, it's kind of when you say it out loud, it really does sound nuts. And maybe it was a little bit, but it informed everything about me.
0: Were there good answers? Oh, no, I'm sorry, go ahead. <laughs>
1: I was just going to say it informed everything about me, good and bad.
0: <laughs> Were there any comics or anything that you read growing up? Like I, I'm specifically like talking about uh, like with regards to Black Panther, did you have an idea of what that whole universe and everything was about?
1: I didn't, you know, I didn't really, I know I knew about Black Panther because my brother and my neighbors, but I never read, I wasn't a comic book person. Okay. You know, I was, uh I, I cannot remember really being into it. I can remember Jesse and the Pussycats, that I really loved that. Mm-hmm. And there was a comic book. But other than that, I think it was more my brothers. And I think uh, I was really more into – I was really into my music and I was re- – really into fashion design and that's what you ended up studying at university of cincinnati right i did and i i mean my mom got me my first form when i was like nine so i started sewing and designing clothes that i would wear to school
0: like you know fourth fifth sixth seventh eighth grade my mom and my grandmother are both like seamstresses in that way uh and they taught me how to sew which was interesting because like so growing up uh we would do, like, they just taught me, like, how to do cross stitching, like, just to start off. And then, of course, later it's like, oh, now you teach how to use the machine and all this kind of stuff. And it was always something that I sort of just did just to do, like, not flaunting it or anything. It wasn't until I got to college and I was, like, making money from it because nobody knew how to, like, sew on a button or, like, <laughs> fix, or, like, fix a hole in their sock. And I'm like, I can do that. Oh, I need to put a hem in these pants. Oh, I can do that. So I was just making a little money doing, you know, alterations and stuff like that. It comes in handy.
1: It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I I really threw myself into fashion. I would watch on TV. They would have these. Um, I can't even remember what the show was. It was like a. It was almost like an Entertainment Tonight, but it wasn't Entertainment Tonight. But they would <laughs> show like videos, and I remember Norma Kamali had. She's a designer in New York, still around, I believe. Um, and she made these videos of her clothes. Like, I don't even remember any other designer doing that, but it would be, she was doing bodysuits at the time and that was her thing. And there were videos of these models and these bodysuits, but it wasn't like them walking down the runway. It was like a music video before music videos. This had to be way before MTV and like the eight, like the early eighties, like, you know, probably three years before MTV. And I was entranced. I've always been entranced by TV, but that I was just like fashion and in visual, you know, kind of performance art in a way. So I that really like I think what was really happening was I was connecting with the visual Mm -hmm. and but since it included fashion, you know, and I was always very fashion. You know, I was kind of a punk rocker, if you will. And then I kind of I kind of went on a weird direction because of what was available to me to see like in the music that I listened to. But there was a lot of different types of music in my home uh, that I grew up in. So anyways, I'm getting off on a tangent, but those were sort of the things that I was into. And so I really jumped into fashion at an early age and then was really bound and determined to that I wanted to be in uh, fashion design. I remember going to New York City when I was 13 years old with a friend and we visited her aunt and she took us to the uh, Easter parade on Fifth Avenue. And all the kids from the F- from FIT, Fashion Institute of Technology, were out. And I, I still have pictures, the pictures from them. This would have been 1983. And they had these hats. They all made these hats. And I just wanted to, that was it. I wanted to go to FIT. So that was really my goal. I ended up at University of Cincinnati in DAP. And after three years, I was like, oh, this isn't really for me. You know, there was something that was lacking and I didn't really know what it was, but I knew it wasn't that.
0: Yeah. I, I know that you later ended up going to to Wright State in Dayton and then you yeah. studied film. So I guess, was that something different as that was sort of shifted that, uh, your discipline in a way?
1: I kind of, after I left school, after I left fashion design, I sort of dropped out of school and I had friends who were in bands a lot. And I had a couple boyfriends who were in bands too. So I hung out – so now we're in like 1990 where you're starting to get this like Bikini Kill and, you know, BC Boys and Rick – not Rick Ross but uh, Rick Rubin. So you're getting all of this sort of mixture of rock, punk, Mm -hmm. hip-hop, you know, um, from – Digital Planets and d kind of DJ stuff to, and jazzy sort of hip hop to Tribe Quest and KRS1, even though I listened to him in the eighties, but that's sort of where I was in this muddled thing. But I'd listen to Fugazi and, and, um, Henry Rollins. And, you know, I went to see shows. And I noticed I loved the visual, and I loved the the fact that some of these bands were telling stories through the visual and the music, like all of it. And then it kind of turned into photography for me. And then my friend was like, "Hey, can you make a music? Let's make a music video." Because she was in a band. I was like, "Okay." And that's when it sort of jumped off. (laughs) As soon as we did that music video, that was it. That was it. And and I knew that I wanted the mix. All of those things, storytelling, style, because there was fashion, um, you know, um, and this visual medium that could sort of say something and
0: had a point of view. And I was like, this is it. And that's where I started. So that was sort of like your gateway into production design then. Was it even called production design then? You know
1: what? I. I didn't know what to call. I didn't even know what I was doing. I was doing all like, the room should look like this. And I had words for what that job was because I didn't even know it was a job. So I was just doing this thing. You know, I was in, my friends and I ended up doing a movie called Girl Posse. And if anybody out there hears this, G-R-R-L-P-O-S-S-Y, Girl Posse, you can Google that. (laughs) We actually had music. There is a song out there that my friend and I are singing on. Um, girl Posse, Girl Posse, da-da-da-da, So it was sort of the 60s, like Beyond the Valley of Dolls, Russ Meyer type, you know, thing, um, Switchblade Sister Grindhouse sort of movie where each woman represented a different period in time. So we had a woman that represented the silent period, a woman who represented old Hollywood, like the Marilyn, uh, or the Marilyn Monroe's and the Jane Mansfield's. And then I was sort of the black exploitation sort of Jackie, uh, Jackie Brown, Cleop- Cleopatra Jones. And then my, uh, then we had this sort of switchblade sister grindhouse girl. So we all kind of tried to represent what femininity was in different periods. And we made mm-hmm. this crazy film. Right. And, um, that's when I was really doing design, if you will. I, put, I had put my little fingers up, like finger clo- uh-huh. finger air quotes. I didn't really realize, honestly, that that was a thing until pretty much when I graduated college, <laughs> when I graduated from film school. And then my professor had said something to me about, you, you know, he's like, you're really your art direction is very good. And I thought, art direction? What is that? Like, what? And then I like got a book and started reading about it. And I was like, okay, this is a thing that I want to do. Like I'm, I kind of, it's natural to me. And I knew why, because I kind of came from that. I was like, this is kind of like what my mom and dad did, but we'll never admit that Mm -hmm. out loud until just now. And that's sort of when I was like, a friend of mine called me then and she said, hey, Hannah, I'm working on this really low budget copy film. Do you want to come and help me in the art department? And I was like, sure all right. And I did that. And I was like, okay, I'm doing this. Where do I go? Where do I, how do I do this forever?
0: (laughs) A lot of your early production work, as I was, you know, looking through your IMDB, it was, was in horror films. You did terminal, you did seconds apart. Uh, I'm sorry. Quarantine two terminal.
1: Yes. Seconds apart.
0: Let me make sure I get that right. Uh, What were those early times like in your career? Well, you can see
1: what they was rough. Wasn't it? But (laughs) (laughs) no. Honestly, those films came when I started, I were, you know, when I started, I was started as a set dresser and I worked with Jean Sardina and uh, Grant Sampson, who are two really great people and great, great, great. Jean uh, is a fantastic set decorator and that I was a set decorator. And one day I was like, I'm going to be a production designer. And there's, you know, a long story to that, but I won't go into it. And so I woke up and I was like a production designer and I, you know, made my little website and I sent it out to all my friends who I knew, like worked on film and did stuff. And a friend of mine called me and she was like, Hey, I saw that you were a production designer. We're doing four horror films in Iowa. Do you want to design them? And I was like, Oh yeah, sure. Definitely. I had no idea what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And um, other than being a set decorator and having seen designers, I had not designed a film as the designer at that point. So we went out there and they were a million dollars each. They were each 18 days. Um, Like it was like, you know, seven or eight days of prep and then 18 day shoot. We did two in Iowa and then their film incentive went bust and we went back and did two in Baton Rouge. Um, one of them, and then I did seconds apart was separate from those four. So it was really what I used to learn. It was like I was getting paid to go to school at that point. Not very much, but I was getting paid to go to school and learn how to manage a crew, how to really work a budget under sort of those types of circumstances where you had to learn how to be resourceful and learn where to put my crew. What are they good at even if they don't see it, what where would they shine the brightest and and be the most um, you know uh, be the, be the most most effective on the film or you know in the art department for me so I, I kind of use those as experimental ground, if you will, beta testing of playing with starting to do builds and how can I you know mix building and, you know, augmenting practical locations and working with scenics and learning about really, you know, how color, you know, works in a story and how certain things are, are tonally. So I really use those moments. So they were hard moments as learning, uh, learning <laughs> moments and a foundation f- to grow on and to build my resume. So I could do more.
0: Speaking of building your resume, uh, after those movies, that's when you met Ryan Coogler. Is that right?
1: Yes, it is. Um, I remember I was sort of in a slump. You know, you we know the film industry is feast or famine. And I was in a famine, if you will. And I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know where to go because I was working in New Orleans. And people kind of knew me as a New Orleans person who did low-budget horror. And I and I wanted more, obviously. I wanted to do more. And I wanted to do other genres. And I reached out to win Thompson uh, Thomason and, um, Spike Lee's designer and he called me and we talked and he kind of just like shook me out of this sort of fog. He was like, get, get, get it together, Mm. you know? And he's like, you need to find an agent, which I didn't know anything about that. Um, you, you know, you need to get in the union in the ADG, the art directors guild. You need to, um, branch out and you need to get your name past the borders of New Orleans. And he, he's like, and don't do horror anymore. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to pigeonhole yourself. And if you don't really feel something for a script, don't do it. He's like, say no, it's okay to say no, you know? And at that point I would never thought about those things. So you know, I started reaching out to agents and three weeks after that conversation with Wynn, I was signed with Datner Dispoto. And the first thing that they did was say, you know, my agent was like, hey, you know, we got the script in. It's a really small script. It's shooting up in Oakland. First time director, young guy. Uh, read the script. Let us know what you think. And I read the script. I cried my way through that script. And I called them back and I said, I need to meet this person. I need to meet this director. I want this job. And they're like, okay, there's no, doesn't have any money. (laughs) So they were warning me, doesn't have any money. And I was like, I just want to meet this guy, you know? And so we Skyped, I was in New Orleans and Ryan was in Oakland and I had put this collage together on the wall. I worked really hard on what I felt the colors and the textures and the tone of Oakland would be for this script. And I remember holding the computer up to the wall, like, "Here's my, you know, collage." What I should have done was put it in a lookbook and, and emailed it to him, <laughs> but I didn't know better. And I, we talked for a couple hours, and he was like, "Okay, well, you know, we're talking to other people, you know, get, you know, talk to my producers, and we'll let you know one way or the other, and you know, a few days and stuff." And I was like, "Okay," and I said to him before he hung up on Skype, I. I said, you know, I really want this job. And he said, all right, bet. An hour later, he called me back on Skype. He's like, come on, let's do this. And I was like, ah! he's like, okay, but we're not starting now. Because I was like getting my keys and packing my bag while he's still on <laughs> Skype. He's like, no, it's not so, you know. And that's how I met Ryan. And I went out to Oakland, drove across country, couch, surf, cou- couch surfed, if you will, and a pet sit so I could have a place to stay. I, I pet sit the whole time, pretty much. Mm -hmm. And, um, that changed everything. No getting, you know, meeting Ryan changed everything. And I'd never met anyone like him before. And I was blown away by him and everything about him. So, uh, you know, and it
0: was a hard story to tell. And he did it with grace. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's such a gripping movie. I mean, I've seen it twice now and I mean, it's, it's one of those kind of movies that just sticks with you. Yeah. And I think a large part of that, I mean, aside from just the story itself, but also how you've done your production design work on it and really kind of building this world around Oscar and everything that that happened. So how did you really like prepare for working on that film?
1: I you know, the first thing I did was watch one of the cell phone videos Mm. of that event. And maybe in my ignorance or naivete, you know, and I had known about you know, Robin King and da, 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 and that this happens and this is like this racially charged, you know, um police brutality that happens but I didn't understand it like I did when I saw that video and I was destroyed watching that. Yeah. And that was the moment I said that what I do must make a
0: difference. Period. So it sounds like that I mean that particular movie that was sort of the that was the turning point for you.
1: It really was and it's really hard to talk about it cuz it's really emotional yeah. and um you know I tear up to this day when I talk about that film. It will never leave me. And it, it did really change the trajectory of who I am and of how I what, what how I understand film.
0: Mhm. So let, so let's move ahead a little bit. Uh, you mentioned Miles Ahead earlier. Uh, Miles Ahead for those listening, it's a it's a Miles Davis film. Stars Don Cheadle came out in 2015, um, and like similar to Fruitvale Station, it's a biography in a way. Um, what did you learn from Fruitvale that you were kind of able to carry over into this film?
1: Really resourcefulness, because we mm. you know Fruitvale was 650 thousand dollars. Wow! So we we had nothing. <laughs> And I, as a designer, I had to be very specific about what was going to happen because, you know, I had, you know, penny, I had to, down to the penny, I had to know what was going to happen and I had to know how to be resourceful. I had to, I didn't really have a crew. I had maybe, you know, there was two other people at the end of the day. It was me plus two. And I, and I, you know, the thing, the other thing about that was I took away understanding that I needed to be more aware of a different perspective of telling a story. Like there's mm-hmm. this whole other angle that I so that people, often, you know, not just me, a lot of people and myself often overlook that even though I can see the building outside my window, the way I see it, that the person on the other side of the building that I'm in sees it in, from a different angle. I'm not thinking about that angle because I'm only looking at my angle, right? I need to just stop looking at my angle and understand what it looks like from that side. And maybe that's the angle I tell it from. Maybe that's the angle I design it from. And I learned that from Ryan. So then when I went on to Miles, that was very helpful with Dawn in the way that he wanted to tell this story because it was very, like, free-form, stream-of-consciousness, way that the script was written and the way that he wanted to tell the story ultimately. So I had to learn how to look at it from another perspective. The other thing is, is that, you know, Fruitvale was based on a true story and this is a biopic. Mm -hmm. So I could, I also knew how to sort of take liberties without changing. Does that
0: make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You have kind of like poetic license a little bit. Yeah.
1: Exactly. But not like change a narrative or change the person. And also stripping away the stereotype. Mm. That's a big part of my work is like, just taking a guillotine and just sticking the stereotype in and cutting it set off. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and there's some, there's some need to show like, for instance, for Fruitvale Station, who Oscar was. Yeah. But we didn't go in like you would see had it been maybe an other filmmaker where it's like okay I need you know all these gang things everywhere like they would because I think a lot of times when you know we're not telling our own stories the only way that sometimes people understand a different culture or community is through the the lens that they've been shown and they don't even realize over their whole life. And so it's just an ingrained thing. It's not necessarily always this thing of like, you're not serious, you know what I mean? It's just this thing of like, oh yeah, well he's black and he's obviously in a gang and he would have like, you know, all these like rap posters everywhere and he'd be da 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 That's sort of, maybe he didn't because he didn't have the money for that. And that's not what he was thinking about. Cause he's trying to feed his kid. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So yeah. that if you look at Fruitvale, that's not there, you know? Yeah. Oscar dealt marijuana. Uh, there a lot of people do, but you know, and that's part of his, who he is and the what he's wearing. You know, Ryan was very specific about like in 19 uh, or two, 20, 2009, this is how people dressed in Oakland. You know, mm. this is what we look like. This is what we wore the XXL, you know, white shirt with the black shirt under, or the black shirt with the white shirt under, and the big, you know, shorts yeah. or the big pants and dreads you know, because that's a big Oakland thing. And that's, and the way that people spoke, the sort of the colloquialism within the region, like those things are important and those are true and those are real and those are tangible. But when you just start adding stuff from like weird stereotypes and stuff. So I, that I want to just take away because I want to give people the truth as much as I can possibly give it Mm -hmm. and be creative at the same time. I don't think they responsibility negates creativity, which I think people think it is. If I'm responsible, then I can't be creative. Well, certainly you can. And if you can't, then maybe you should rethink how creative you are in the first place. So
0: the second film that you worked on with Ryan was Creed. And that's also the second time you worked with Michael B. Jordan on a film. Uh, And Creed has this storied history. I mean, it comes from all the lore of the Rocky films, six Rocky films. At first I thought it was five, but I forgot about Rocky Balboa, which I I I think everybody forgot about that one, but no, but like like there's six Rocky films. um, And then Creed is sort of the spinoff from it. How was it approaching that movie when like, it's, it's already got this developed world in it. Like in terms of place and character, there's already a lot that's there. How do you come in then as a production designer and kind of, build around that
1: well it was a little scary because uh, rocky is iconic yeah <laughs> so i was like well what am i you know and and at the same time i was so excited because i've seen all the rockies i loved rockies i did the thing i did the shadow boxing and you know and the first thing i did when i went to philly was run up those steps. Come on. And I, I had the music on my iphone when i was doing it and um you know, and I did the same with my arms and I took a picture with the statue. I mean, it's like he's part of sort of, you know, Rocky is a part of sort of American iconography. Yeah. And so what am I going to do? And what I did was exactly what Ryan and I talked about. It's It's Rocky, but it's a different film. And, you know but we can still have fun with it. So I knew we wanted to make something that was standalone, but then could be, you know, related to the, to the others. Certainly that we wanted to have in, I worked a lot with Warner brothers and the Winklers, um, who were the original um, producers of the Rockies, all the Rockies and just to an MGM, excuse me, MGM, but Warner brothers was also on that film. But MGM is the, the studio that carried Rocky and, okay. um, I got into it after a while. Once I sort of started getting myself into this sort of boxing, the culture of boxing, the people, the boxers themselves, the people that they keep around them. And then, of course, meeting Sylvester Stallone and sort of talking to him. Let me tell you something. This man remembers everything. (laughs) He was looking at the art wall and he was talking and I'm standing there with him and he had a story for everything all the Rocky pictures that I have up. And I think the the essence of it was that feeling that we all got when Rocky wins and the feeling when Rocky struggled. Cause we kind of took the films one, two, three, four and the, and we jumped off of four, right? We didn't go yeah. five and six. So we wanted the grit of the one. We wanted the really texture and tangibility and tactileness of the first Rocky. Um, You know, because it got really slick there for a while, right? And we wanted to keep it in that place of rocky of Rocky One. And as far as the look and the tone of the film, which I think we did, we wanted Philly to be a character. We wanted Philly to be uh, because that's where it started, right? And if we start the franchise over, we're going to start it where it started. And Ryan really wanted to show the dichotomy between the old Philly and the new Philly and how those two are coming together and thereby, you know, kind of juxtaposing that against the relationship of, you know, Adonis and Rocky. And so we're telling the story of the city, but we're telling the story of these people sort of in the same light. So I always had to keep my mind on that. But I had fun throwing in Easter eggs all over the place. And let me tell you something, not everybody has spotted every Easter egg yet. (laughs) Was, and it was really a dream working with Tessa Thompson. She was fabulous for her set. We saw it and we talked. I love her to death. Um, you know, we talked about her character. We brought some things in from from Tessa's life um, into that set um, that was important to her that she saw that was there. And that was a lot of fun. And, you know, I found out later that they were, you know, this is how you know you did good. You do the set for her apartment in, in Creed. And then and we all the stuff we had, you know, when she's doing all the music with Michael and stuff worked all that Pro Tools, Mac, all of the headphones and the little 808 and all that stuff all worked. And, um, and of course, Ludwig was there. So Goranson and he Ludwig was like, we've been coming here ever since this set has been done and just hanging out and <laughs> him and Ron. And brother Keenan and Tessa and playing music and dancing and hanging out like it was like it was really Bianca's apartment. Mm -hmm. And they and they loved it. And they're like, it's so comfortable here. And, you know, Tessa was comfortable there like it was her apartment because they had been hanging out there and eating and, you know, doing what they do. And I was like, that's that's it. That's why you feel peace and comfort when you see that and the color, too, because I really ambered it out. Um, because of her skin tone, but also because I wanted it to feel super soft and feminine, um, against sort of her hard exterior. And, um, and so, yeah, you just have to kind of not get overwhelmed by that. It is a Rocky film, Mm -hmm. but, and make sure you're doing something that stands alone, but you always remember that, yes, it is a Rocky film. Cause you know, it. it, it's it it was it was wild and i'm glad that that was i did that with ryan because we had a blast doing it i always have a blast when i work with ryan though
0: i mean i think it's also like a testament to your work that you you created this apartment and it ended up being something that people felt like was home to them in a way
1: yeah i you know and i when and that was after miles but you know it was on miles ahead that after we got done with his house the 1975 version of of Miles Davis's house, his um, nephew, I think it was his nephew and his son. Yeah. No, his nephew and his uncle, maybe. There was two there that were in his family, but I know one of them was his nephew. And they, you know, Don was like, they're going to walk in and look and, you know, kind of see what they think. And I stood outside like shaking, like, oh my God, please let them, you know what I mean? Like, did I do something horribly egregious? (laughs) And um, he came out and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, that's my uncle's house. And I don't know how you did it, but that he's like down to the beer cans on the table. Wow! That's my uncle's house. He's like, that's how I actually remember it when I was 10 years old. And I'd be there for the weekend after he had a party. Wow. <laughs> and he's like, you brought him back to me. And so that was a challenge to me to always be, to always do that. Yeah. No matter how big the sets got, no matter how intricate they got, but to bring a feeling to it, um, because that means more to me than some critic, like I that's not where Miles Davis looked or whatever. I don't know if any critic said that, but you know what I mean? To have him feel that when he walked into a space um, meant everything to me. And so it just became part of sort of the thing that I love about production design is the feeling when someone walks on a set and actually feel feels it. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. like like water for chocolate. I, you know you cry in the cake and everybody cries when they eat it yeah. and that's what I want I don't want everybody to cry though I want to laugh in the cake and <laughs> have everybody to, you know but maybe sometimes I cry so I want people to feel like what I'm feeling when I'm doing these things because I'm super emotional and I always thought that that was a fault and I do you know you know you have to learn to control that thing but it
0: also it's what makes me me yeah it's what makes my design me i have to ask about beyonce and lemonade like please tell me how that all happens because <laughs>
1: that's a funny story um, because i had just gotten done with moonlight okay and i was back in new orleans after that because moonlight was shot in miami and i was tired it was a hard film and um you know it was about two weeks before christmas and i was like i'm just gonna not do anything and, um, I get a phone call from somebody, I don't even know. And they're like, Hey, you know, Khalil Joseph gave us your name and Chase Irvin. Would you, h- Chase shot Black Klansman? And, um, and I would worked with Chase before on some commercials. And would you consider, you know, he said, Hey, call this girl. She's the designer. She's, we're doing a video for a pop star. <laughs> That's what they said. And I said, a video, I said, mm, you know, it was like a music video. That's like three days. And, you know, I don't really, for three days, I don't really want to do that. And I don't know pop star. I don't know who that is. And I don't really do music videos, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, no, you know, thank you for calling. Keep me in mind. You know, la, la. Hung up. And then probably a few days later, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I should have done that because Christmas, right? And then I'm like, oh, wow. And then about another week goes by and the phone rings. And they're like, hey, you know, just check in. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to do this, you know, with the pops, you know, it's a big pop star. And I'm like, I'm thinking in my head, like Taylor Swift, like pop star, like who's, and then I'm like, you know, they called twice. And usually when that happens, you know, there's a reason, like there's some universal something. I said, sure, I'll do this. And they're like, okay, great. You know, can you come down, meet with them, you know, in a week or whatever. And I was like, sure. Or in a few days, I think it happened right away. I don't even remember how quick it was after the phone call, but so I go to the hotel and Khalil's there. and meet with Khalil and we're talking a little bit. And he's kind of going over like what he's kind of envisioning for some of the bigger beats. And and I'm like, who is and is this person? I'm like, well, lemonade is coming. La, la, la. They kept saying lemonade. And I was like, OK. And I remember standing with my back to the door and looking at people who were looking at the door, and they're like, "Lemonade's here!" And the door opens, and everybody's faces like fall fall off. <laughs> like, who is this? Like, you know what I mean? I was still very much like, I don't even know who this is. I turn around; it's Beyonce, and then my face fell off, <laughs> and I was like, "Lemonade is Beyonce. She's not a pop star. She's the star. Right. Like, what do you like, like? what pop star? Like, first of all, who would categorize her as pop?" <laughs> really? I don't think so. <laughs> and then I was like, and she's far beyond a start. Like, I don't, so that was crazy. And I know that I was staring at her face and cause you, you know, you've only seen somebody two dimensionally, yeah. right? Forever. Yeah. And, and here she is. And I'm like, this is wild. That's probably the most wild thing that's ever happened to me ever in my life. Like I had no idea. And, um, and it was like, okay, go time. <laughs> we've got minutes to get this together so good. yeah and you know you kind of have your moment and then you, business and she's you know what can you say that that was i worked with her again on her on the run to her and jay's on the on the run to tour uh-huh. so i did the interstitials in jamaica and la for that with melina actually yeah. not Suka. And that was lovely. So Lemonade was, you know, the thing too was I had only listened to two of the songs. I only got to hear two of the songs. Okay. And so, you know, and I knew we were doing an unspecified amount of videos at that point. And then they were like, well, it's like a film. It's like a small film. And we want it to be the sort of a deconstruction of emotion. And it was really important to her to include aspects of Katrina aspects of and definitely wants the texture to be New Orleans like it was a, it was New Orleans yeah. like you know and she has a great love and so does her sister she lives in New Orleans um love for the city as do most when they go and fall in love mm-hmm. with it and um she wanted to bring sort of that aspect out this this beautiful blackness this beautiful culture that embraces blackness and the the fact that The community, the black community in New Orleans has overcome so much, you know, starting from the beginning of New Orleans, you know, and even though that, you know, New Orleans was, you know, we think about colonial time. Well, black people were there, too, and black people in New Orleans were there and the city, you know, the music of the city, the parades of the city, the sort of culture of the city, the food of the city um, and all of its glory. So she wanted all of that in there and, uh, you know, I did my best. And there was also a certain amount of freedom that she gave that was also frightening to me because I, you know, was doing features and I had a script and, you know, there's other other creatives that you sort of bounce ideas and brainstorm with. So it was very much a mishmash of everybody and not that she didn't really have specific things that she wanted done, but, or, you know, v- envision for the for the um, short film, but she also was like, you know, yeah, just go, you know, what do you feel? Like, how do you, how, how would you deconstruct this? Yeah, And, and that froze me. And I can remember standing on the set. I forget. I think it was all my, one of the sets and just frozen, just I couldn't do it. And they're going to shoot with in any moment. And I, you know, there was nothing on the set and I'm just sitting there like, I can't, And that's when I, and I had a little bit of a panic attack and then I pulled it together. (laughs) And I said to myself, if you're as good as you think you are, then this shouldn't be as hard as you're making it. You have to let go Mm. and be okay, you know, uh, with what you do because you're going to do it from your heart. And that was a moment of me sort of... um, taking control of a certain amount of um, creativity of my own creativity as well so that's what that gave me and she works man she's she's gracious and lovely and she doesn't stop and she works and you want to keep up with her and you want to do right by her and you want to give her everything you she needs and wants and any of her desires and Cause she is that yeah. person. She embraces everybody. So it was, it was, um, it was really a fantastic experience.
0: I mean, I, I remember when Lemonade came out and certainly just watching, I think uh, people's reactions on Twitter, specifically from black women that were, there was just something about Lemonade that was so familiar and personal and in a way, kind of like a biography because it's going through this chronicle of what I think maybe at the time we assumed was happening in Beyonce's life. I don't recall if, if news about this had came out at the time Lemonade did. But it's also in the same way kind of like the hero's journey through like grief mm-hmm. and infidelity and like you're going mm-hmm. from uh something familiar into something new and it, and then like at the end with, and I don't know if the, the video order was, uh, was intentional with how like, I feel like lemonade began in water and ended in water, particularly when Beyonce like descends into the water on top of the cop Ooh. car, like a, like in a, like a, a, I don't know, like a baptism of sorts. Like yeah, lemonade is so good. Oh, my God. Yes. I can't, I can't.
1: Yeah, it is. And it was like, you know, when we were talking about the portion, Hope, I believe, is what that portion was called, with all the women in the um, kitchen. In the, uh-huh. And that was a slave-quartered kitchen because we were on a plantation. That was Destrehan, I believe. And, um, you know, I sat in that building because it's separate from the from the actual plantation and there was nobody in there, and there was nothing in it except for the fireplace and there was a kettle, and there was you know the fire was glowing at that point, but it was just me and the kettle and the and I thought um and there was like a little hook that came out that you put the kettle on in the fire, right' Cause it's original mm-hmm. it's the it's the real it's the original the kitchen the original kitchen for the plantation and I thought to myself, like oh, this is so grim, like you know what I mean." Um, and I remember talking at that point I was over by the, I walked over by the trailers and she had come out for a minute. She was trying on some wardrobe and she said, it's like alchemy, which I have tattooed on the back of my hand now. Mm. It's mm. alchemy. She's like, these women are, are creating and educating themselves on healing through different spices, through different, you know, uh, they're learning science through food and through all these other ways that that's how they're empowering themselves. She said, imagine a plantation in the 1800s, a secret plantation owned by the the head of the plantation was a, a black elder, a woman. And then all of the girls there were of their own agency and were educating, being educated in everything sciences, arts, humanities, um, weaponry. And we really created all of that at the plantation as well. You don't see all of it, but the paper stage is um something that I took from colonizers, really. And um because that's what it was, um, you know, paper dollhouses were only, Victorian paper dollhouses were only for the aristocracy. And I turned that whole stage into a paper dollhouse, because, you know, to, to, to sort of shift the ownership of, of who owned the plantation, right? So, um, I went back into that kitchen, man, and I said, uh, you know, I said to the decorator, get everything, get everything and I can remember taking she brought like this bundle of apples and my mom used to take an apple tie a piece of twine around the um, stem and tie it around the little hook in the fire and let it sit over the fire so it cooks until it starts to boil and bubble and then she'd mm-hmm. pour brown sugar on it and that would be our treat and i took an apple and I just cooked it and I said you know what this is this isn't a slave kitchen this is this is science this is education this is empowerment and that's what I'm going to make it and that's the scene with all of the spices and all of the food and all of the women bustling around and it just ended up being so beautiful we lit candles everywhere and we built this whole garden that they're in and the paper stage was right there and we did the dining hall. It was just, everything was fantastic. I mean, it was all about her wanting to change that narrative of what a plantation meant and what it could could have been. In the same way, a little bit that we did with Wakanda. You know, with yeah. Wakanda.
0: Wow. Plantation as laboratory. That's, that's some Afrofuturistic shit right there. That is... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to be dwelling on that for a minute. Absolutely. Uh, before Lemonade, you said you were working on Moonlight and I heard that there were lots of budgetary constraints in terms of, I think it was like a million, $1.1 $1. 1 million he had for the budget. Not a lot. And that it was shot, you know, very quickly. But then after Lemonade, you go on to do Black Panther, which is this huge production blockbuster film multi-million dollar budget what were some new challenges that presented themselves now that you have this you, you know the same more money more problems like yeah right? what What were the new challenges that presented themselves now that you have this like increase in everything
1: you know i think it, you know it is that a little bit more money more problems and I think it was now everything was bigger. And even though you felt like, you know, I think in my mind, the fantasy was like, I have all this time and all this money. And I can do whatever. Woo. And it's really none of that. It's you have now everything you're doing is bigger. So you don't have any time and you certainly don't have enough money, even though you, you feel like you have enough money. It's all very relative, you know, Okay. in a weird way. I think the actual challenge for me was fear. It was fear. It was fear that I was going to misrepresent. I was, it was fear of my own bias, my own unknown bias that had been drilled down into me that I didn't even know was there that kept coming up and struggling with that, struggling with doing right by the culture. Let's be, let's be clear. Mm-hmm. New, this It has to be right. And I cannot rest, sleep, not, you know, eat, whatever it takes until I know that this is what it's supposed to be. And mostly until I get Ryan's blessing on every single set and every single everything. And I leaned on him a lot. And I leaned on Marvel a lot. I leaned on Victoria Alonso to, like, keep me moving. Because it can be overwhelming, I think, dealing with a crew that big was intimidating at first, I learned so much about, if you don't ask for it, you're not, you're not going to get it. Just ask, doesn't matter. Like, don't worry about being liked by people. Like this has to be right. And if that means I go down in flames, you know, darn it. I'm going to have the black community look at this and be proud.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Have, so that's, that was what it was for me. And, you know, we wanted to make something good and I wanted to make people proud to be, you know, of their African heritage, of their, of their African selves, you know, and, and what, and how that has, what, what that means being African-American on and, and and all the things I think I've talked about in the last mm. long while, but that those were the challenges that came with this specific film. Now, because I never thought of myself as doing a tentpole movie, honestly, certainly not a superhero movie. And that's another thing I love about Ryan. He's always taken me on these films that I would never see myself doing. And he's always <laughs> doing stuff that you would never think anybody would do, you know. And in a, in a, in a, in, in the, what he does with it is amazing. And so here I'm on this comic book superhero movie. Look, my son got me way up to speed real quick. And then I got myself up to speed on Black Panther's history and canon and um, made sure that I paid homage to Stan Lee and Jack Kirby and to all the other artists um, that worked on Black Panther um, throughout the years in the 70s and the 80s and Panther's Rage. And then, of course, Tanahatsi Coates and um, Brian Still Freeze, who was the artist for his comics. So we use all of that as source. And I made sure to keep certain things from Kirby, like the shapes of the, some of the shapes of the buildings that were some iconic shapes that he had in his Wakanda. You know, it, the, the, the challenges were more internal and um, than anything. Because I can handle a budget and I can handle designing something. But when you've got a crew at times of 200, 300, 400, 500 people, Um, Just in the office, it was like 40 people or six art director, eight art directors and uh, 15 illustrators and, uh, you know, eight or nine set designers. And then we had modelers and, you know, then the set deck department who had departments, you know, onto them. And then there was, you know, props department. and They were a big department. And then I was working with VFX and Um, special effects all at the same time. And then we were having big sets go up and I'm traveling around the world having meetings in South Africa with LA about, you know, Warrior Falls. And so it was sort of that. It was the pace, it was keeping up and it was not ever falling down and just knowing, you know, I just had to keep going. And when it was over, it was... You, know, you mourn that a little bit because you created a family and you've done something at a, you know, at a thousand percent every single day for 14 months. And then one day it just stops mm. and your adrenaline is you know, like, boom, and hits the floor. And, you know, I had lost a ton of weight. I had, you know, stressed out a little bit too. So it, th- those things were the challenges for me. Not, not so much like handling this ginormous budget, you know, and on something like that, you got people for everything. So there were people handling that budget for me. And, um, you know, I, I was very much in the position where I could create, be more on the creative side. Like I spent more time with Ryan on Panther than I think I did on any other movie. Because I had such a big crew that I could do that. I would say those are some of the, the that's really what the challenge was on Panther.
0: And I mean, and now, I mean, Black Panther is part of, it's, it's part of the culture. I mean, of course you won an Oscar for it. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Uh, your work is in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. Mm-hmm. That surprised me when I first went. I was not expecting to see as much Black Panther in there as I did. I was like, wow, this is, this is something. I mean, how does it feel when you see your work? I mean, given what you've just said, how does it feel now to see your work received with such broad acceptance and such a, I mean, such a monumental impact.
1: It's, an, it's crazy. I mean, you know, I've always said to myself, honestly, the only type of success and the only type of fame, air quotes, that I would ever want is to be remembered as someone who created a world. And I would said that to myself years ago, years ago. And the fact that the reality has exceeded the dream is hard to process in real time sometimes. Because it's like, you don't really think deep down. At least I didn't really think deep down that I would ever do anything like that. You know, I always thought maybe in the back of my head, but you keep it as a little tiny seed in the back of your head. And then when it starts to happen, your whole, you know, your whole self just kind of goes, what is going on? But I'm tickled by it. I'm proud of it. I am glad that I was someone who can, make a change or or start a conversation about the change as being the first black person to be nominated and to win an Oscar in my category, that's big, you know. And I always said I just don't want to knock the ceiling down. I want to take out the whole structure. Yeah. And that that's success to me. And I wanna keep doing it and I wanna help others do it because I've 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 now knocked the wall down and I need these other people now to come and and walk through. We need to create a wall of people. And um, so it is really wild. It's hard to, you know what I mean? Like maybe in a year or something, I'll look back, but it's sort of hard to form in your head. Like I can't ever rest on my world. I can never become complacent and I will not. And I want to keep pushing because there still is change to happen. And um, so I feel part of me feels like if I stop for a moment and enjoy this, that I'm losing sight of something. So it's very hard for me to, it was very hard for me to be all, yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. But cause I felt like I, there's more work to be done. You know, I'm ready to, to keep doing the work, doing, doing the work, the work, the work, the work, the work, but I am certainly honored and humbled Um, at everything that has happened um, because of Panther and all the other things that I've done as well, you know, and, and the recognition from the industry has been so humbling to me by people who I have admired my entire life to come up to me and tell me how moved they were by my work. It's crazy. Like I'm, it's like, I'm talking to people who have been doing this for 30 years and have changed so much about the industry and about the way we see film telling me that and you know uh, it's very humbling <laughs> it's very humbling I and it's almost you know I may be a little embarrassed because I feel like do do I deserve do I deserve it really because I feel like I have so much more to go but that happened and and it was because of the team that I had and because of Ryan and Marvel at the end of the day for that and, you know, all the hardworking people that have worked with me on all these films. So I just, you know what I mean? I'm good at steering a ship. Yeah. <laughs> I'm good at steering a ship and I'm good at like, envi- like, visioning things and maybe some call it hallucin- hallucinating. Just kidding. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? I, it's hard. Like that, the African American Museum, when I was told about I was just like, Oh man, that's, you know, so yeah, I'm, I'm honored and I'm humbled every single day. I'm hon- honored and humbled when little girl, you know, reached out to me and told me she put, uh, I did my best and my best is good enough on her wall. That's as humbling and, and, and I'm as honored at something like that as well. And I, and I realized that that moment was bigger than, than Anything that I could
0: ever do was that moment. Um, Yeah. So what is your life like now after you've gotten the Oscar? Busy.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But good. It's good to be busy. And I found that I'm doing a lot of speaking too, which I love. I'm going to a lot of elementary schools and middle schools and high schools and colleges and talking to people and kids and young men and women. I was at Morehouse talking to their C STEM group that were graduating fantastic group of guys talented um just lovely I got to meet Julie Dash she came to um the uh one of the little uh, uh moments that we had we had some lunch um and you know so doing a lot of stuff like that and just reaching out to the community and talking to people because I think you know you can write a check and go about your business but When you can give your time, I think that that means even more. I'll still write the check, but I got to give my time as Mm -hmm. well, like for people to know that they can do this too, you know, and go through any amount of struggles in their life and still come out on the side of things, you know, because I was a single mom and before I was a single mom, I had a very bad drug habit um, and, you know, that was one of those times where I could have not made it out of that. And I, Mm. because of perseverance did and, you know, had and then I had a son later and was a single mom and that made me strong. And at that point is when I went back to school. So it's like, it's, that's what my life has been like after seeking out ways that I can encourage and uplift, um, the next generation, To don't stop because you feel like it's hard and don't stop because you feel like your circumstances are going to allow you to do something that's not true at all. And don't believe somebody if they tell you that, that if you keep pushing, you know, my dad always said, if you work hard, you can have whatever you want. And it is true. It, you know, it's hard and it sucks sometimes, but it's true. And um, and that's what I want to want to keep pushing and keep t- talking to the kids. And then I've been working, yeah. you know, and I've been doing other stuff outside of like the art that I do, the filmmaking that I do is other types of um, art and photography and, and um, sort of, you know, looking into some other things that I can't really say. <laughs> <laughs> That's why i like things in the, in the fires in the coals, fire, yeah. you know, you know, coals and the whatever, but I can't, Really, say too much about it, but some really exciting things that are designing outside of sort of filmmaking okay. and these opportunities to sort of work as you know. Not that I'm not an artist; I you know, every filmmaker is an artist, but doing more artisan stuff, I would say, and that's really cool. Um, I'm getting into some jewelry design and whatnot, so I can say that a little bit. Nice, okay. Uh, yeah, bringing me back to my little bit of fashion, if you will. Gotcha, and. Uh, So yeah, and then there's and of course there's projects coming up that I can't talk about. Of course, there's Black Panther two, that I'll certainly be doing, and um, another project that we're trying to work out for me to be on
0: that would be with Lucasfilm. Did you say Lucasfilm? You kind of snuck that in there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right. I dropped a dime, didn't I? Uh, yeah. I snuck that in there real quick. That's all I can say though. I was like, I got to give something up. That's about as much as okay. I can say. No, just- well, I,
0: I appreciate it.
1: <laughs> if that works out. Yeah. That would be a really big deal. That nice. would be
0: a big thing
1: that would happen if that happened. So what, um, you know, I got my fingers crossed and it's something I really, really, really want to do. I think, and I feel that my obligation is also with black neighbor too. So let's hope this because will work okay. out. Um, And then I'm open. I really want to do like a period piece, like a real like gritty, like, you know, period piece. I want to get my fingers into, you know, I want to continue to work with black filmmakers. That's where I'm most at home and most comfortable. Um, and I don't want to feel like that doesn't mean that I don't want to work with other directors, but I think that that's sort of for me right now, uh, I feel like you know we're we're always talking about um you know, I talked to Ava a lot, and uh you know she's a huge mentor, and i you know the importance of us telling our stories, I think that that's where I think I'm needed right now, the most um is to tell the stories the way that they need to be told. I mean you know you look at um when they see us, it just broke everything, oh,
0: yeah, absolutely it
1: broke everything. It changed everything because we finally were telling our story the way it should be told. And I feel like there's a protection there inside of me. That, and again, that does not mean that I don't want to work. Like, I would love to work with the Cohen brothers. Call me. <laughs> and um, I would love to work with Denis Villeneuve. I would love, there are filmmakers out there that I want to want to work with. And cinematographers that I want to work with. And you're not to. Call me. Um, you know, I always drop you know hints about you know whenever I try to do an interview, it's like I you know that I want to work with that an important thing yeah. that I want to because you know that's what I also know, but i I really believe that there's there is a need and I need to be in a certain place, and I'm just kind of following what the universe is telling me to do, and that's where it's taking me. And so that's what I'm doing. I just want to tell things that are not just beautiful stories, but also important stories to, to whatever it's, you know, and I don't want car. Why give me a call? Um, <laughs> um, Cause I know he's doing another film, but I think it's already underway. So Spike Lee, Harry went up to Spike and told him, I was like, so when are you going to give me a call Spike? I mean, I get it when, but he's, he works on other projects too. Like every once in a while, I know. So anyways, he was like, I'll call you. <laughs> looked at me and kind of gave me a wave like I'll call you just come on <laughs> I was like all right, all right. <laughs> so you know I just feel like everything is open and I'm just gonna let myself go where where I feel and that's kind of how I did things before mm-hmm. I wasn't so calculated um I kind of just went where I felt and I'm gonna keep doing that I lead with my emotions and so I'm gonna continue to do that but I do feel like you know, and I want to direct. Look, I'm not going to lie about that either. That might be in the works. Okay. Okay. That's a, that's a, that's a nice. real thing. And, and I have been looking at scripts here and there um, for directing. And there are good people that support me in that. So I would say three years down the road, which would get me through a couple of films that I really want to be doing. I will look to at least try and begin, you know, and I've got some really great people, um, that I can, uh, call and ask questions. Right. (laughs) So, yeah, so that's sort of what I see and, and what I've been up to, what I see coming in the future is just trying to embrace all of the goodness that came from Panther to sort of, you know, shine a light on the things that need to be seen, and to lift up the next generation and bring them into the fold. And that's, you know, empower women in this and, and stand strong, even though when I'm scared to death to do it. And, and sometimes you do, you got to stand strong and fight for the things you believe in. And that's when it comes to hiring crew to picking the films that you want to do.
0: I have just a couple more questions though. Specifically. I want to ask this one because I feel like it's probably really important for people that are listening. Um, Sella Lewis, who she's been on the show before, she's worked with Revision Path, etc., she said uh, she met you last year at UX Week in San Francisco mm. and said that she was just blown away by your intensity. Uh, she says that she's been described as someone that is also passionate and intense. Uh, she doesn't believe that you can do this halfway. You have to go all in in terms of your work. She wants to know, how do you surround yourself with people who support your passion and intensity without being intimidated?
1: Um, I picture care people <laughs> okay. you know like Ryan he's you know what I mean like he was the first person that just let me be that way, and he was fine, you know what I mean like he he embraced that, and when he when I saw him embracing like this sort of intense part of me and very passionate part of me and emotional part, as you can see through this interview I've probably tried almost start crying like four times. Um, he embraced it and he kind of sort of said to me, like, that's not a flaw. That's, that's a benefit. That's an advantage. And that's how you should see it. And that was the first time I kind of thought like, oh, okay. I've always thought of it as a flaw, Mm -hmm. but he saw it from the other side of the building. See how I brought that back? (laughs) And, um, that's what Ryan does. So all of a sudden, I could see it from that side. And that's how I learned to appreciate the different perspective in that way, too, is that I'm not, these things aren't flaws. These things are part of me and they're beneficial and they're advantages to who I am. It's who I am. So um, I kind of started to like understand, like, if, if, if you don't want all of this, <laughs> then maybe we shouldn't be working together mm. because only be me. And I'm not going to do right by anything. If I'm pretending to be something else, I'm not going to be telling the truth. It's like going to the psychologist and lying about everything. What's the point? I got to show up as myself in order to do the thing that I do. And when I show up as myself, you get fruit veil, you get moonlight, you get creed, you get lemonade, you get black Panther.
0: You get black X, You get,
1: <laughs> yeah, right you, know, you get you know yeah. dark water that's when i yeah. me. that's when people allow me to be me and so i think that now that i'm not afraid to mask that and sort of tamp it down like it's a flaw the people who are attracted to that type of thing are the people that are around me
0: how do you stay in touch with your peers as you like move along in your career
1: Oh, we talk all the time. Fruitvale station family is still a family. We are very much a part of each other's lives, like on the daily. And um, Ryan created a family and we have stayed that way. And that was that moment, that Fruitvale moment will live forever. And Mm -hmm. um, within all of us, like Rachel, like I know, I just talked to her the other day. I just talked to Ryan the other day. And uh, when, when I was at his baby shower, I, that Ludwig's wife was up there. Ludwig couldn't be there, but he she was up there. We hung out. And Ryan's wife's in. The, I mean, like, you know, we're just family. So I, and, you know, same thing happened on Creed, and Antoinette Messam was the. Um, Costume designer. She's a really good friend of mine. She's actually probably have dinner tonight. (laughs) So we just keep up with what we're each other's doing. We talk about projects that are out there. If I, if I feel like I need to talk to Ryan about anything, I call him. same with Rachel and you know, they're the nearest and dearest people to me. And you know Mm -hmm. what it reminds me of, and I've been doing this with the three of us specifically me, Rachel and Ryan, you know, Ludwig. So, um, elusive sometimes but uh you know he's not always around but I take a picture of us all the, every time we're together the three of us so I have these pictures from when we were babies on Fruitvale Station to when we trapped Black Panther and we look like completely different people <laughs> um but yeah I mean, it's important that you find your tribe kind of if you will and you stick together. It reminds me of the picture of the original Saturday Night Live group before they were on Saturday Night Live mm-hmm. when they were working the comedy shows and they were all sitting on a bench in New York. And it was years before Saturday Night Live. It was like Gilda Radner and John mm-hmm. Bellucci and Dan Aykroyd and mm-hmm. uh, Bill um, Bill Murray, I think, was in the picture. I can't remember. There was like two other people in the picture. They like children. And then it's like 20 years later, you know, the same picture. And I feel like that was us on Fruitvale. Like we were just babies. We didn't know what we were kind of getting ourselves into. And we just wanted to make this really intense, important film. And we were all very passionate. We were working 22 hour days. And Rachel and I would hold each other up when we saw each other. And, you know, you go through something like that with people. Then you have Ryan, who's your leader, and he leads in a way that can't be rivaled by anybody. He creates this atmosphere of equality and equity and peace and creativity and um, it's beautiful. And so we've just all stayed in each other's lives. And, you know, I met people over the years working that I still talk to all the time. You just want to keep up with people. And in this business, it's really hard because now, It's like, you know, Rachel was nominated last year and, you know, I was nominated this year and it's always like, Hey, you know, maybe, you know, your assistant can uh, call my assistant and we can maybe get lunch. You know, so, cause I'm going to be in this, I'll call Rachel and be like, what country are you in? She's like, Ukraine. I'm like, I'm in Jamaica, you know, so (laughs) what time is it where you are? She's like one. And I'm like, okay. It's like, I just got done. We just wrapped. It's like four it's hard to keep up because we're all over the place and we're all in different, you know, Ryan's up in Oakland and Rachel's in LA and Antoinette's in LA. I'm in New Orleans, Mm. but we do because eventually we all come back together and we create. Wow. Where, I
0: mean, I know that you've talked about these kind of future projects and if you could see yourself like, I don't know, 10, 15 years in the future, what kind of work would you want to be doing?
1: I want to be the head of a development company or a production company. Nice. That's pretty specific, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I rolled that out like, okay, so here, show me the receipt. You know, all of a sudden it's Jerry Maguire, show me the receipt. You know, no, I, want, I really want to develop young people's um, work. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to help sort of garden, if you will. I think by then, I will always be a production designer, but I would love to write and direct. I would love to have a production company. I would love to have a development company. You know, I would love to have a first look deal for my crew of uh, young directors and writers. I would like to uh, help, you know, shape them and, and move them in directions that they want to go, um, challenge them to what their work is. I remember talking to this one young man and he was saying to me, he's like, you know, I he said, I want to tell stories about all these things that are going on in the world right now. He's like, I want to tell stories about like, you know, migrant people at the border. I want to tell stories about the injustices of, you know, pe- non-black people of color and people of, you know, black people in America. I want to tell these stories. And yeah. he's like, you know, I came from this small village in Guatemala and we tracked our way and he's telling me his story, right? Yeah. After he tells me this whole story, I said I looked at him and I said, "You need to tell your story." And he just looked at me and cried. I was like, "Son, you need to tell your story. I want to hear your story." That's how I start to understand. I, don't, you know, you're going to bring an understanding to me with just the journey that you had to take from Guatemala to DC. That right there is a, a movie. Nice. Write that, you know, and he emailed me not too long ago. I wrote that, you know, I want to do more of that. I want to recognize greatness and I want to pull it out of people. I do recognize greatness and I want to continue to pull it out of people. You know, I want to lift that up because we need great people in this world right now. And that's what's so you know, that's where I want to be in 10 or 15 years. I want the world to be here in 10 or 15 years. And I hope I can be a part of that. You know, I'm working really hard to use the small platform that I have to try to lift people up and and know that uh, questioning and challenging is part of our journey. And that the only thing that matters isn't some slick piece of technology, but the people. We will not have a future without people. Everybody's talking about these futuristic cities and da-da-da-da-da. The one thing you saw in Wakanda is people. But what you don't see in Elon Musk's highway tunnels are people. What you don't see in Google cities when you look at them are people (laughs) because they don't even put people into their comp man it's like where are the people so that's my whole thing and um, my motto is that we have forgotten and instead of coming together we want to dominate one way or the other and it's like no we all just need to come together because that's how we survive and if we can do it we won't so it's like it starts by understanding it starts by me changing because if I can't change myself, I can't help change no, anybody else. So, you know, and there's so many things still yet I have to learn. So, yeah, I see myself in that capacity, hopefully in a in a way
0: where I have the power to actually greenlight something. Wow. <laughs> well, just to kind of wrap things up here, Hannah, and I mean, we've we've talked about.
1: So do you, I'm going to say something real quick. No, go ahead. Do you, do you think I'm in this. <laughs> My little intense Has it been intense? Like, uh, you know, you can tell, you can tell me. No,
0: case. no, I think this is great. This is absolutely great. No, this okay. is great. Okay. I was actually just gonna wrap up the interview because I know we've been going for a while.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Um, well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out? I mean, aside from just going to the movies, but I mean, where can our audience find out more about you and your work and everything online?
1: You know, you can go to my website, hannabeekler.com dot com, and you can go to at chinchilla. Uh, 1970 on Twitter, because I often kind of say where I'm at and what I'm doing and, uh, you know, announce projects and things in that way. And uh, yeah, you know, you can always go to also ddatalent.com
0: and they have like a little section where you can see what I'm up to. All right. Sounds good. Well, Hannah Beekler, I mean, for our 300th episode, I could not think of anyone more prolific to have on, especially given... I mean, just so much of what you've done with not even just Black Panther. I feel like Black Panther, maybe for a large amount of people, was in a way like an introduction to just how much work you've done. But I think this interview certainly shows that like you you've got more than skin in the game. Like you are in it to win it a hundred and ten percent. I mean, from your early work up to now, I mean, I can just feel the drive and the passion and the emotion for this work that you do. And I just hope that we keep seeing it from years and years now into the future and that what you do inspires the next generation. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Maurice. I think that this is fantastic and I really appreciate you talking to me today.
0: Thoughts of love are in your mind. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Hannah Beekler, and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Hannah and her work through the links in the show notes at glitch.com forward slash provision path. This episode is sponsored by Sappy North America's Ideas That Matter program. Sappy, a maker of high quality printing, packaging, and release papers, as well as dissolving wood pulp, is celebrating 20 years of this unique grant competition for designers working on social impact projects. Applications are considered by an annually selected panel of top designers and social impact leaders, And this year includes Sam Aquilano from the Design Museum Foundation, Ashley Axios from the Obama White House, George A. of Greater Good Studio, Antoinette Carroll of Creative Reaction Lab, and Christine Taylor from Hallmark Cards. The 2019 deadline to apply for a grant is July 19th. To learn more about the program, visit sappy.com forward slash ideas that matter. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch, but for designers, Abstract is your team's version-controlled source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs, all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 30-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is a Glitch Media Network podcast and is produced by Deanna Testa and edited by Brittany Brown. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. We're also powered by Simplecast, which is the easiest way for podcasters to publish and distribute audio on the internet. Make sure you check the show notes for a link to sign up for a 14-day free trial. And if you liked this episode, then please let more people know about it by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It takes about a minute or so to do, and it really helps spread the word about Revision Path everywhere. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you find your favorite shows. And make sure you're following us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter as well. Just search for Revision Path. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.